This is the Classical Ideas Podcast. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden. Today's topic is a book and history discussion about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Mormonism. If you are looking for the basics of how a practitioner sees this faith, I highly recommend you check out my episode with Ryan Jenkins back in number 11. My episode with Ryan is one of the most popular downloaded episodes of this podcast, which I suspect is because LDS is very little understood or completely misunderstood among huge swaths of the American public. My students frequently cite Mormonism as a religion with which they are hugely unfamiliar. If you were among that crowd, you could do much worse than spending a little bit of time with Ryan's episode. Today's talk is about much of Mormon and LDS history in the United States, The conversation goes really deep on several topics, such as the Mormon involvement in American politics, the history of race and Mormonism with regards to African and Native American peoples, a discussion about why Mormons aren't considered Christians by many modern American Christian communities, and how to academically study religions when one doesn't practice those religions that they are studying. So my guest today is Dr. Max Perry Mueller. Max Perry Mueller received his PhD from Harvard University. He is a historian of American religion and an assistant professor of religious studies at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. He is the author of the new book, Race and the Making of the Mormon People, published by the University of North Carolina Press in September of 2017. Dr. Mueller is a wellspring of information, and our conversation is very fast-paced and lively. So without further delay, I bring you Dr. Max Perry Mueller. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Max Mueller, Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Nebraska. Dr. Mueller, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm curious if you can go ahead and just introduce yourself a little bit to the audience and maybe talk about your scholarly interests. Sure, happy to do so. Um, depending on, I'm not sure exactly who you know who you reach in terms of audience, but I I like to insist on Max Perry Mueller for disambiguate, you know, just to clear things up. Um, I, I don't know if you know of the famous, famous German, Anglo, German uh, philologist uh, by the name of Max, Friedrich Max Mueller. So, um, okay. So yeah, <laughs> I do like to insist on that uh, middle name. 
Um, no, it's a, it's a, uh, there is no relation, first of all. And uh, my parents were not religious studies scholars, uh, but, you know, a kind of uh, plant, planting a seed of perhaps a, a career in, in following in the illustrious footsteps of Friedrich. Uh, Max, uh, Max Mueller. But anyway, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a scholar of American religious history at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I uh, focus mostly on, in terms of my scholarship, on 19th century America and the relationships between race and religion and how race and you know, racial and religious identities and experiences are are mutually constitutive in in the 19th century uh, American experience, um, especially looking on the toward the toward the margins of mainstream American society, and that's hence perhaps one of my interests in 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 looking at Mormons and people of African descent and native people native peoples and not quite white quote unquote um, in the kind of in the understanding of whiteness in the 19th century, those type of uh, communities to see if what kind of lessons we can glean about, about how religion, fun- and religion and race function and function together in, in, in American history. And so, yeah, that's, that's a little bit about myself. Um, I finished up my PhD at Harvard University in 2015 and had the great experience of working with many different uh, wonderful scholars at, at Harvard, um, and that's kind of a little bit about my my background um, in terms of uh, you know my my uh, scholarly background. I was actually born in Casper, Wyoming, so uh, on the Mormon trail, so to speak, um, and had a lot of Mormon play, uh, playmates growing up in Casper. Uh, the six years that I spent there in, um, uh, before my family moved away, so um, come to that interest in in. And Mormonism and uh, history of the West, kind of naturally. Um, Very cool. I love that you can appreciate the plains. I'm sitting here talking to you in Columbia, Missouri. Sure. <laughs> so, I, and I'm actually really grateful that you and I are on the same time zone. I've been doing yes. several of these lately, and it's always a really fun uh, balancing act to interview people from sure. around the world. Sure. So, stepping back a little bit. Um, so I think that being a religious studies professor, a religious studies teacher, is so interesting and such a curious profession. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about your spiritual path to becoming a religious studies professor. What was your upbringing like? Um, did religion have anything to do with your chosen profession? Yes. Uh, you know, uh, for, for my personal, you know, in my personal history, it absolutely did. Um, but I want to provide a caveat or a big uh, caveat for a lot of my colleagues to, for whom you know, it, it, the personal did not necessarily lead into the professional, though, of course, uh, you know, some of our biography provides some destiny, but not all. Uh, but absolutely, my my spiritual path as it or paths, as it were, uh, as they were, it certainly influenced my interest in religious studies. I mentioned my grow, my time spent in Casper, my folks after my folks were kind of back to the back to the land. Um, kind of uh, 1970s homesteaders, though not in a kind of formal setting or a formal community or intentional homesteading, but in some ways they, they considered themselves kind of that kind of post-hippie uh, movement of homesteading. And so at our, on the, on the as the, we called it, the big house on, on Casper Mountain that they built, um, there was a greenhouse and solar 
heating systems or you know passive heating systems and we 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 didn't have running water it was pretty rough hewn uh, intentionally rough hewn um, and I think both of my parents even in that kind of experiment of going back to the land were kind of showed their 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 what I call kind of the classic religious seeker element of our, of America's religious history and both of my parents and me as their only child have continued that kind of seeker seekerism but in very drastically different ways my my after my parents split my dad my father became a um, a very conservative uh, evangelical christian uh, to a, tr- a tradition uh, in which he has remained if not formally at least in 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 temperament and my but my parent my mom um has has passed through times in which in which she's been interested in being a Wiccan, um, Unitarian Universalist, an Episcopalian, a Quaker, you know, some other goddess kind of movements. Um, so both of my parents are very interested in questions of spirituality, of questions of finding kind of ultimate truth and meaning in the world. And so I spent a lot of time going between my parents' um, households when I was growing up, um, spending my spending summers with my dad in the West and and every other weekend, sometimes when he eventually moved to upstate New York with him, uh, going to a very, very, you know, traditional uh, or not even traditional, non-denominational Bible, you know, Bible churches. On one weekend, I'd spend that about hearing about, rap, uh, about sermons about the rapture and, and the coming of Christ. And the other weekends, you know, in, you know, post-Christian, uh, post-Jewish UU communities. Um, so a pretty uh, varied, diverse kind of religious formation. And so I was always interested once I got to college and certainly in graduate school, uh, interested in sussing out those questions of ultimate meeting, which I saw both my parents investigating in. And I always, I mean, since I was a little tyke, I always knew I wanted to be a historian, but um, I ended up in religious studies classes in college and uh, in part because I wanted to kind of work out my own kind of faith journey and really, in some ways, um, uh, understand my parents better, in particular, uh, my relationship with my father. So that's a long way of saying that, for me, the personal certainly is is part of my vocation. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I had a, a, one of my students, a very bright student, was in, as all my students are bright, of course, if ever a University of Nebraska student w- were to listen to this, um, <laughs> uh, uh, one of my uh, equally, as any bright students, was in asking me about Mormonism. And if you get me talking about Mormonism, uh, a faith I probably know best besides even my, perhaps even better than my own. Um, she asked me, well, you know all this stuff about Mormonism? <laughs> and this is a question that I've gotten asked by uh, missionaries too. Why, why didn't you join, you know, become a Mormon? And, you know, this is true kind of about religious studies. If you know all this stuff about religion, you know, why haven't you found a religion that you're interested in in particular? And I say, well, our, our, you know, the, the classic answer for religious studies folks is, well, uh, a cancer doctor doesn't need to have cancer, right? Um, sure. <laughs> so the thing, the thing yeah. we study doesn't have to be necessarily so personal. Um, but in some ways, in some ways it is for me. And in fact, I think it is truly personal for us all um, that we just, we, man, it manifests in different ways uh, for all of us. But um, yeah. So you have um, this great new book out. It's about 90 days old now, um, Race and the Making of the Mormon People. And yep. I've been diving into this for the last couple of weeks now. And so 
One of the things that really strikes me is my connection with my own students. So over the last uh-huh. several years as a religious studies teacher, I've taught many Mormon students, mm. and they see that I am very open and uh, interested in different religions, so sometimes they open up to me. And some of my young LDS folks are honestly traumatized by the notion that LDS isn't considered Christianity mm-hmm. because they very much consider themselves to be Christian. So mm-hmm. in your book, Race and the Making of the Mormon People, I'm looking for a little ways that I can connect with my students a little more as sure. well. <laughs> and, and you mentioned that Mormons often aren't viewed as Christian by other modern Mormons because of something called the open canon. Can you briefly give us a Christian versus non-Christian argument about the open canon debate and why some Christians say Mormons aren't Christian to kind of frame this conversation? Sure, sure. Yeah, so, right, this is a live live question. Um, Mormonism's place within broader Christianity, and when actually I stood, when when I just taught a survey on American religious history, and one of the things I did at the end to kind of test— uh, my students' understanding of the debates with between uh, kind of what will, what will, lack of a better word, traditional Christianity, um, I think that's fair, or traditional Protestantism versus Mormonism's innovations, um, restor- they would probably call them certainly restorations of the faith. Um, we kind of made a list of things that really dis- distinguished between uh, this tradition, traditional, traditional notions of Protestantism and, Christ, and, and Mormonism. Um, one is certainly the open canon, which relates to a few things. So in the 18-teens and 1820s uh, in Joseph Smith's upstate New York, there were hot, hot debates about how to properly do things, uh, mostly about doing things, mostly about performing different kinds of rituals. Uh, about, in particular, about baptism or uh, or ordination of of ministers into the uh, to to be to be Christian ministers. What was the godly? What was the actually? What was the biblical? Um, as in biblical canon? What did the Bible canon have to say about proper uh, whether whether infant baptism should be allowed or what uh, whether you needed a uh, a professional priest class or uh, could the apostolic succession just be passed along by, from uh, from priesthood holder to priesthood holder by the laying on of hands? And he noticed that Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists were all fighting uh, about uh, fighting fiercely. Uh, it's funny to think about Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians fighting fiercely now, since a lot of the denominations uh, folks move in and out of fairly com- uh, comfortably now. But these were issues of uh, debated as eternal damnation if they weren't properly properly conducted. Um, and Joseph Smith uh, was frustrated, as he tells us in his, in his various histories, about all the, as he put it, sectarian quote you know sectarian fights uh, occurred. And um, and he found it frustrating that the source material was a Bible that had been passed from that was that was not in its original language, of course, that had been transla- been passed from translator to translator, from one language to another, basically through millennia. And, and um, Joseph Smith kind of observed and was told by, uh, in, in what Mormons call the first vision, that uh, none, of these, none of these various faith traditions had it right. And that soon, the, the father and the son told Joseph in this, uh, Smith in this first vision, well, that happened, and it's, uh, we're not sure exactly when it happened for him, but in his mid-teens, that another truer, truer gospel would be, 
would be um, present re restored to the world that would solve all of these real, really thorny questions about uh, liturgy and ecclesiology. And, um, and then, lo and behold, a decade and a half or so later, um, Joseph Smith produces, uh, publishes uh, the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon uh, is the first installation into an, uh, an, uh, 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 what becomes an, uh, part of the Mormon canon uh, of scriptures that both adds to and seeks to correct biblical, biblical canon. And so um, Mormon, the Mormons, not only with the Book of Mormon's kind of addition, but the Mormons believe that God continues to speak, uh, as I say, in the present tense, uh, first to Joseph Smith, the first prophet of the Mormon movement, but also to his successors, and that the prophets have been the, pro the, the age of prophecy um, um, and uh, kind of the writing of scripture has been returned to the world. The Presbyterians, the Baptists, and the Methodists would all have said, oh, the, 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 the time of miracles, the, kind, the time when God was speaking to humanity, it kind of directly has passed, and so we have to basically in, infer um, what God's truth is from this, this closed canon. But no, the Mormon said, no, the, the canon has been reopened. So the Book of Mormon adds to this, uh, adds to the Bible. Uh, it's not that the, the Book of Mormon replaces the, the biblical canon, but helps to cr uh, make a clear uh, pronouncement, especially on these issues of liturgy and ecclesiology. But also new, new writings, new scriptures can be made, new additions to the canon uh, about what God, or as the Mormons put, put it, um, as the Mormons call him, Heavenly Father, has to say to uh, you know, his contemporary or his, his contemporary church, um, and will speak to the contemporary church. And so obviously a lot of Christians would find this uh, abhorrence that there could be new scriptures, there could be new additions to the Bible, or, um, uh, or maybe not even to the Bible, but new additions that, uh, that, that they should hold uh, in such reverence to, to, uh, to the, as, as the Bible. And, and so they find that notion that, the, that, that God is still speaking to a, a bunch of, currently now, oxygenarians <laughs> in Salt <laughs> Salt Lake City, uh, kind of abhorrent and very, very troubling since, since you know, since the Protestant Reformation, uh, the Bible has been understood as, as the sign of, you know, the signifier of, of, of prophecy and truth, but also contains it uh, both in its limit, in, 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 it's in its limited form, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, despite its limited form, it's ever ever speaking um, um, from those particular words. So Protestants remind this, uh, there's, a, there's a, actually an uh, Islamic idea that I think fits really well to it. It's, it's called ikhtihad. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but ikhtihad, which, uh, which basically translates to, if I understand it correctly, going back to the sources and finding truth there, all, re returning to the sources and, um, and finding new truth there that you hadn't noticed before, which is, what the what kind of pro, you know classical Protestant exegesis does, and the Mormons are certainly great biblical and Book of Mormon exegetes, but they also understand that uh, new messages can be delivered. So, <laughs> awesome. That, that's a long way way of kind of framing open open canon. Well, it's complicated, you know, and you yeah. really have to pay attention to the details when you get into this stuff. Otherwise, there's a lot of trouble that could come from it. 
Sure. Um, and in that open canon, we have things like the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine mm-hmm. of Covenants, the Pearl mm-hmm. of Great Price, um, mm-hmm. and things like that. So it, I think it's uh, important to pay attention to those distinctions. Sure. So um, let's get into the weeds here on your book a little sure. bit, because I have so many questions on your book. And I know we're Great. not going to be able to talk about everything, but I'm sure. just ex- in- excited about this text. Great. So Terrific. most people wouldn't tend to think about race necessarily when discussing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, like in, in like big history of it. Maybe today mm-hmm. um, we have our preconceived notions about what it is or is not. But can you talk a little bit about the history of Mormonism in relation to race, uh, specifically the significance of like pre-Columbian Nephite and Lamanites who sure. are viewed as being cursed or not cursed? Uh, sure. Or people on how the Book of Mormon sets the stage for discussions of race on the North American continent. Sure, sure. I, I would, um, yeah. Um, do people not think of race when they think of, uh, of kind of Mormon history? Uh, yeah, it, it depends on what we mean by race, and that's kind of the, one of the main questions that I raise in the book. Right. What I'm trying to do in the book is, first of all, is actually take a step back of how we in the 21st century con- century conceive of race. Um, and return to the early 19th century to reef to 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 re and, and understand how 19th century Americans and yeah mostly 19th century Americans understood understood questions of race uh, as a as a as a category and you know today when we think of race mostly because of our uh, because of America's history in particular of slavery and exclusion of people uh, in particular people of African descent from uh, well, citizenship, uh, freedom, um, uh, the, uh, the, the ballot box, et cetera, et cetera, uh, schools, uh, race has been kind of mapped as understood as kind of a black-white binary. Um, and so one of, the, one of the main focuses is to return to the 19, early 19th century when race wasn't as clearly in, in the United States clearly understood as such uh, a black-white binary. So um, I don't know... I, I wonder if that's perhaps perhaps most people wouldn't think of uh, race as one of the main issues of of more in Mormon history. Perhaps not as much as polygamy, certainly. Or if folks know anything about Mormon history, Mountain Meadows, Ma- the Mountain Meadows massacre. I'm just kind of listing the the <laughs> the most perhaps things that folks know about uh, about um, Mormonism who who aren't familiar with them. But I, I would say a lot of folks, especially who came of age, say in the 1960s and especially in the 1970s would think of race as a major uh, issue within the LDS church in, in part because of the century long century plus long uh, history of excluding in particular people of african descent from full membership as i clunkily phrase it full membership um, which basically means exclusion from the priesthood uh, uh, which all almost all males hold in the LDS church. It's a lay priesthood. And from the most sacred rooms to the temple, um, the, the church had a prescription and pro, a prohibition on, on people of African descent uh, accessing those, those offices and those spaces, which uh, are really, really important to, to both Mormon identity and also Mormon understandings of the hereafter. That said, so Mormons, you know, in some ways did adopt because of their history of exclusion of people of African descent, which lasted until 1978, and speaking of an open canon, which according to the prophets of the church in 1978, they received a revelation to 
to end that end that ban and welcome people of African descent as full members of the church. And and it's just it, next year is the 40th anniversary of that of that of what uh, what is now canonized as doc uh, as dec- they call it Declaration Two, uh, official Declaration Two of the Church, and which uh, um, in June. 1978, this revelation was received. And it's, it's important to kind of think about how this revelation came about uh, to understand kind of back to the question on open canon. Uh, one of the things that I think a lot of folks don't understand about revelation and how it works in, in, in Mormonism in terms of how the prophets get revelation, it's not a lightning bolt sent down from heaven or more directly a, a, a piece of parchment that falls down from heaven, you know, for a new revelation. Um, the prophets gather and... Add, this, and this has a lot to do with kind of Mormon understandings of human agency. The prophets gather and a- the prophets have to ask the right questions, right? So humanity has to be prepared to ask the right questions to receive the right answers. So, so they were ready in 1978. A lot of people, kind of apologists for this racial policy would say, we're finally, the church was finally ready. The world was finally re- ready for the church leaders to ask the question. And so they asked the question and received the answer. Um, to 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 end this racist racist pol- uh, um, policy, but you know back to questions of the Book of Mormon and ne- Nephites and Lamanites. What the Book of Mormon does, and what the Book of Mormon introduced to to Amer- American understandings of race, was to uh, reframe the whole Christian drama, uh, biblical Christian drama, away from the old world and into onto the new world, um, and so. Many of the same kind of family uh, spats that happen in the Hebrew Bible are re, uh, reappear in, in a different form in some ways on, on the American continent. Uh, the Book of Mormon very briefly tells the story of a Israelite family that leaves Israel, um, flees Israel in the 6th century uh, BC um, and heads to the heads into the wilderness, which readers of the Book of Mormon in the early night, or you know when it was first introduced, un- kind of understood as as the Americas. And this family eventually splits splits into two rival factions: the Nephites and the Lamanites. And the Nephites, more or less, though this is complicated, it's a very complicated text, the Book of Mormon, more or less are presented as the godly godly people, uh, the keepers of the faith. The keepers of the records, which is really, really important for my for my own work, they keep the records of this history and their and, the, and their pre-American uh, history, and and their less faithful, less literate kin, the Lamanites, split off and and become idolatrous. Uh, savages, although again, this is complicated. There are points when the Nephites are more are, are less valiant in the Book of Mormon history than the, the Lamanites. But basically, because of this split, the Lamanites are cursed for rejecting basically the gospel and the, le- and the leadership of the Nephites. Um, they are cursed, and the curse manifests uh, with, uh, in the Book of Mormon telling with, as dark skin. And Mormons uh, er, and, er, and other early readers of the Book of Mormon in the early 19th century understood the Lamanites um, as the ancestors to modern-day Native Americans. So the Book of Mormon sees these people, these Lamanites turned, you know, Native, or who eventually become Native Americans as at once, you know, heirs, literal heirs to the oldest of covenants, the Abrahamic covenants. These are, uh, you know, 
Israelites who had had literally lost their way and and forgotten the faith of their forefathers, um, but they are also uh, you know in their current state you know in the nineteen early nineteenth century understood as you know savages, anti um, you know enemies of civilization, the classic stereotypes of quote unquote the Indian in the American imagination. Um, so uh, so the Book of Mormon both at once reinforces this notion of Indian as savage and Indian as enemy of civilization, but also upends it because it understands this Indian as actually Lamanite and, and, and going back even farther, uh, Israelite. And the Book of Mormon prophesizes that one day these Lamanites would eventually not only restore them, be restored to the, the knowledge of their forefathers, but take the lead in, rest, in creating a new Jerusalem uh, to which Christ would return in the uh, in his second coming, and so that was really the the kind of understanding of early early Mormon understanding of of, of Native Americans. They were particularly uh, interested because of the Book of Mormon in reaching out to Native Americans and converting them, seeing that Native Americans as uh, as key to bringing about the the second coming of Christ. And in comes Joseph Smith. Yep. Right. So Joseph Smith comes in with the Book of Mormon. And so what does it mean to you when he says he was to, quote, gather together a restored chosen people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, that's uh, the gathering is a key feature in uh, the literal gathering of Zion um, is a key feature of, of Mormon theology. And it remains so. It's one of the articles of faith, uh, which is also kind of canon. Uh, is the literal gathering of Zion in the Americas. So the gathering would, in, would certainly include, uh, in the earliest years, in this kind of early Mormon imagination of this, of this, this new world community, or new, actually not world community, but this new city that they build, certainly would, in, would include res- Native Americans who had been restored to the knowledge of their true lineage, uh, their, their true uh, ancestry back to Israel. And it would also include uh, quote-unquote Gentile, so Anglo-American, Euro, Euro-American converts who had also uh, accepted the kind of Mormon gospel in this, in this gathering of the, in, in this new city in, uh, of New Jerusalem that Joseph eventually prophesied or, or, or um, would, would uh, be built in in and around uh, Independence, Missouri, that was kind of the the original uh, vision uh, where the New Jerusalem would be would be restored. Um, so that was what the Book of Mormon foretold, and that's what the early church uh, tried to bring about: is this literal gathering of the of the of the faithful to this city, and they build this city of right a righteous city um, of both converts, uh, both Anglo-American, Euro-American, and Native. Who would live together and and build this city to await Christ's return? And as they built it, um, you know, and this is one of the understandings of kind of race in Mormonism. Curses. We haven't really talked about those, but curses like the like those that were pronounced upon the Lamanites, which were manifest in in, in dark skin, and um, uh, which the ancestors of the original supposed wicked uh, uh, folks who received these curses. Uh, would those curses would the manifestation of them would also disappear in this in this new city? So these these Lamanite peoples would be restored 
to their original non-race status, um, which in kind of 19, early 19th century understandings of race, and I would argue even 21st century American understandings of race is, is a kind of a form of whiteness, right? In American, uh, American, uh, American understandings of race, right, white is the default race. White is the raceless race, of course, though, of course, it's very much pregnant with meaning. Um, and um, this is true in kind of Christian, you know, traditional Christian understandings of race, quote-unquote Christian understandings of race, but also um, certainly Mormon understandings of race, that race is not of God, necessarily of God's design. Race, race enters into human history as a result of sin, human sin. And, um, and, and um, race, uh, in terms of race as demarcation, marking off uh, one set of the, fa- the human family for the other, it's a punishment because one branch of the human family rose up and, and sinned against the other. So it's a way of separating the righteous from the wicked within the human family. And the Mormon understanding of race is that race is this is a is much more mutable uh, uh, category, and 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 race could be overcome. And uh, the cursed those who belong to cursed lineages, especially peoples of of native descent or excuse me, Native American people, uh, could be restored to their kind of true non-raced status. So that's what was the vision was for this for this gathering. So Joseph Smith seems to present him. Uh, so in the book, he seems to give off the impression that he's trying to gather together people, right, regardless yeah. of skin color in the moment. Yeah. So yeah. do you think that Joseph Smith Jr. thought that his views in the 1830s and 1840s were sort of a version of anti-racism since he was trying to incorporate those societies across skin color? Yeah, I mean, the anti-racist certainly is a is a word is a is a very 2017 word. Yeah, uh, 2016, 2017 word. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Joseph Smith says himself, you know, that or actually God through Joseph Smith says that he's called to re- to bring about the restoration of all things, to end all schisms within the human family uh, for for those who are willing to believe. That's those are political divisions. Those are certainly religious divisions, and those are also racial divisions. So race was one of the divisions within the human family um, that would that would end with a restoration of the of the true gospel. So yes, I mean, I do think uh, Joseph Smith. I don't necessarily think it's probably right for us to call him an anti-racist. Yeah, and I have a second he, part to that question too. Yeah, <laughs> but he. He certainly, I mean, his his views. It's kind of again from our twenty first century understandings of what an anti racist means, uh, which is not a a destruction of of non white racial categories or ending of non white racial categories, as because those categories are somehow inferior. That would certainly not be anti racist. Right. Um, but his views were certainly radical in their inclusion. That you know, one of the things I think. That my book, the point my book tries to make is that um, that because these categories again were not of God's design, right? They were they were the kind of the end. Race enters into history because the fall because of the fall in some ways, or a second fall in particular, a second fall among certain branches of the human family. So if these these branches of the human family can can be restored to the true knowledge of their selves. And their true parentage, and um, and restored to the true faith, then they can overcome those those schisms. And so that's pretty radical, especially in 1830, when the Book of Mormon was published. And let's not forget 
This is the same year that Andrew Jackson signs into law the Indian Removal Act and, and, and you know, culminating in the, the forced removal of, of Indian peoples all west of the Mississippi. Andrew Jackson says in his, uh, his, his address, in, address to Congress in December 1830 that this is the happy consum- uh, consummation of this project um, and his vision of, of, this, of this new republic was that the Indian could never be an American, right? By dint, by their innate, by their, beca- because of their Indianness, no matter what they did, uh, they, could never become, they could never become an American citizen. And so pop- Native communities, for example, most infam- infamously, like the Cherokees, who had done all, everything they possibly could to prove their, that they were, they were capable of being citizens. Uh, the Cherokees had translated the the Bible into their own language. They had created their own written language. They had written their own constitution, right? They had set up a nation, a Cherokee nation, um, that, to prove that they could be civilized Anglo-American, you know, look like, present themselves as as capable and equal Anglo uh, Anglo-American, or at least uh, the image of Anglo-Americans, uh, which had been the idea of the of the Puritan, you know. Uh, for example, Puritan missionaries to the Native American, the Native peoples, said, "Hey, once we get these folks civilized, they can become part of our our new community." But by the time uh, Joseph Smith introduces the Book of Mormon to the world, those the idea of an Indian as a, an innate, fixed, immutable category was very much a part of American culture and American U.S. policy uh, under, under under Andrew Jackson. So so presenting this radical view that no race is immutable and in fact it's 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 our our mandate our, our divine mandate to 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 restore these native peoples uh to their true selves and then they will eventually uh lead the restoration and even lead this new millennial city was very very scary for the racial politics of 1830 yeah and so and gets joseph smith uh, one of the reasons why the Mormons get into so much trouble um, in their early years and get run out of New York and then Ohio and then and then later Missouri and then eventually Illinois. Yeah. And I mean, so today we talk about cultural genocide, right? Which yeah. is basically what Smith almost seems to also be advocating because yeah. the intention is to breed the darker skin tones out of people over time once they convert. So yeah. whenever I say that he is, he looks like a version of anti-racism, yeah. like it it's ra- it's it's racist still sure. because you're trying to breed out um, color out of people, and sure. so that's a really really sticky point. And he's so it's really important I think to look at him and where he was in the society at the time. Sure, sure. So I yes. kind of I kind of want to um, talk a little bit about Africa. Um, sure, yes. So I've recently been finding some stories about how Mormonism has actually become quite popular in Africa, mm-hmm. and yet Mormonism is essentially an American homegrown religion. Um, why is this trend of Mormonism rising in Africa? Because I know that half of the world's Mormons or so live outside of the United States. Yeah, yeah. So I think the flip happens in sometime in the in the in the 2000s, maybe as late as 2010 i'm not exactly sure wow. but the, ch- the church announced that that yes that half you know the church's growth uh is m- taking place mostly in in africa and the african diaspora in central uh and south america um the biggest community 
the the home the, the nation with the largest home of numbers of, of, of Mormons in the world outside of the U.S. is actually Mexico, so not quite Africa. But anyway, the, the, you know, maybe we could talk about this at the end, but the real tension, I think, for Mormonism in the 20, going forward in the 21st century is, has less and less to do with whiteness and more and more to do with Americanness. And those aren't necessarily, those are, ter, those are, those are terms that you know, obviously have some overlap. But yes, yeah, so Africa is a, is a big growth rate, and that's uh, one of the perhaps many, many reasons that the church in 1978 ended its ban on, on uh, people of African descent. They were, they were having trouble sorting out the various racial politics of, say, in particular, Brazil, which has a, a very different racial politics than, than America, although a racial politics that is certainly also rooted in enslavement of people of African descent. But it, the, the missionaries down in Brazil in the 1960s and 70s were having a hard time saying, oh, we can't say, we, we can't figure out if these people are, are a little bit African um, and whether or not we should allow them to become priesthood members, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, the very practical reason that the uh, that the missionaries were were struggling to work out those racial politics is one of the reasons that the priesthood ban was ended. And also that allowed Africa, the continent, to be opened up to conversion. Um, so I think one of the reasons uh, that Mormonism is attractive to Africa is it's, well, you know, it, let's also just be sin- fair and sincere to the people who do convert. They find truth in it. They find uh, power in its message. Um, and its message of family, of um, fa- eternal families in particular, I think. A lot of African Mormons, um, and I'm not an expert on, on this subject or contemporary African kind of Mormon uh, missionary work, but a lot, a lot of African Mormons aren't necessarily concerned with the Americanness as, as geographically uh, specific, America as a, geog- a geographical s- space. But I do think one of the attractions is Ameri- the, uh, Mormonism as a, an American religion because of its aspirational nature, right? Um, um, because of, um, because uh, in some ways, not unlike other traditions uh, that come from America, uh, that are based in America Pente- and that go to Africa, some Pentecostal traditions, et cetera, the kind of... Um, Oh, I want to be careful with this, but um, other scholars have looked at issues around the gospel of kind of the gospel of wealth. That they're attracted to a faith that is connected to America as part of their of, of Africans' interest in kind of upward mobility, because they see Mormons as successful, economically successful, you know, family-oriented, conservative, also conservative in their gender roles, which are also an, is an attraction to a lot of, uh, a lot of a- African communities who also have very conservative understandings or um, conservative understandings of uh, gender roles. So I think those are the, some of the reasons that are, that are attractive. Um, you know, America is, the idea of America is very popular, <laughs> despite our current age. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, America, uh, Mormonism is an, uh, in some ways, and I don't at all mean to be reductionistic, is another kind of a very particular American brand and um, that, that, that people around the world associate with America. So it's in some ways, even if they're not interested in emigrating to America, though some do, uh, some Africans do end up uh, come to, coming to BYU for school and settling in Utah and other places. Um, I think 
it's in some ways, you know, uh, kind of looking at the sociology of it and even social psychology of the attraction. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a America. Mormonism as a stand-in for America, the idea of America is an attractive, is an attractive, uh, is an attractive feature. And when when you join, this is another part that is very powerful. When you join the church, it's a worldwide network, right? It's a worldwide hierarchy and community community that you're that you become a part of um, that both binds you in a local community, but also make you makes you a member of a community that's that's global in nature. So I think those are some of the potential reasons for for why Mormonism is successful in, in, in Africa. If there's any listeners out there curious about the community aspect of Mormonism, my episode with Ryan Jenkins on this very podcast talks a lot about community, so dive into that if you're curious. Um, so, Dr. Mueller, I'm becoming mindful of your time here, but there's a sure. few more things I really want to ask you. Yeah. So, shifting back to the United States, um, you write extensively for popular journalistic outlets like the Atlantic and Slate, because I know that you're dedicated to informing modern Americans about issues related to Mormonism and politics and all kinds of great stuff. So um, are Mormons historically political? Like, what do you tend to see as the moral imperative of LDS folks for jumping into the national fray of politics? Oh, boy, yes. Um, There's certainly a lot of history there. We're in a really interesting time. It's hard not to think about the present, um, uh, both <laughs> the ex- which what I'll call the existential threat to kind of democracy and uh, that that we're living through right now, um, and uh, and or uh, the restoration of American democracy. <laughs> Those two, I often talk about it with my with my friends who are kind of on the activist side. You know, this current moment is really really interesting, and I think the Mormons. Potentially have something to have something to uh, and and are already playing a role in it. You know, we America can kind of go in down two paths, and perhaps they're not mutually exclusive. So, uh, moving toward the soft kind of form of tyranny or authoritarianism, um, where our our dem- small d democratic institutions cannot cannot cha- check the power of a, an authoritarian uh, authoritarian. Uh, executive and his his enablers in the Congress and in media and or and again these aren't mutually exclusive. We're we're having a moment of you know creating a generation of the most in politically engaged and politically aware uh, citizens perhaps in America's history and perhaps the, again those perhaps are not mutually exclusive. I'm hoping for the latter and that the latter will uh, will prove out to be the case. Uh, to check this particular moment, and Mormons in particular are are abhorred, you know, uh, just disgusted in some ways, not only by our current moments and our current presidents and and other and other members of the Republican Party, say like a Roy Moore, their personal behavior, which they find very very abhorrent, from kind of what they they understood and what many of us understood as kind of family values, you know, character issues. Um, and personal behavior issues, personal decorum, but also threats to the democratic order. And, uh, you know, Mormons who, who had long been excluded from, and for most of the 19th century, from full participation in the American democratic process, um, have long cherished and the institutions, uh, some of which kept them, you know, you know, 
forced them to be excluded. And our, a lot of Mormons are particularly, despite the fact that many, if not most actually, uh, certainly in Utah, most Mormons are Republican, uh, members of the Republican Party, um, they are wrestling with that membership as the Republican Party grapples we- uh, with whether it's going to be the party of Jeff Flake, Mitt Romney, um, uh, our senator here in uh, Nebraska, Ben Sass, who which are all of all of whom all those three kind of represent, I would argue, especially Flake and Sass, a uh, conservative small government, strong checks and balances, belief that character does matter, language does matter, how we treat, how our politicians act in the public arena do matter. Um, so I'm very curious how the Mormons are going to sort themselves out, you know, as a people, whether or not they're going to continue their relationship with the, with the Republican Party as they, as they move forward. And I'm, I'm, aspirational, I'm kind of wishing this in, 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 truthfully, in some of the writing that I do, wishing this into being that the Mormons, and I'm not the only one hoping for this, um, Anthea Butler, another great scholar of religion at the University of Pennsylvania, who's also uh, a fan and slash a critic of uh, of Mormonism uh, and Mormon history, especially on questions of race and gender, um, are also wishing this into being uh, though neither Anthea or I are conservative Christians, we are we 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 hope that there is a conservative Christian space that does value character and decorum and and the rule of law. Um, and we're wondering, since white evangelicals have abandoned that space uh, for Trumpism, we're wondering if Mormons won't um, fill move into this void and um, and stand up to Trumpism from kind of the right. And 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 keep the flame, keep the flame alive of kind of conservatism going through, through this age that is very that it's really you know how we understand conservatism how we understand evangelicalism and how we understand republicanism are are very much uh, live questions at this at this moment so you know those are all um, all real questions and actually the Mormons the Mormons interest in internationalism. The Mormons' interest in and history as a persecuted people, right? There are kind of there, there are a couple of reasons why Mormons object to kind of Trumpism, um, and I've talked about this elsewhere. But number one, they object to Trumpism's attack on my, religious minorities like Muslims. For example, the church after Donald Trump first proposed the Muslim ban, the church hierarchy released a statement condemning the Muslim ban as an as antithetical to American understandings of religious freedom. A very strong statement. Uh, the church tries to be politically neutral, um, though it's, it hasn't always been, especially on questions around gender. So, And that reflects kind of the Mormon's past as a religiously persecuted people. Um, and their empathy, their shared empathy and shared experiences with uh, religiously marginalized people. And also, they, the Mormons, for kind of very practical reasons, reject Trumpism's uh, demonization of immigrants because most of those immigrants are, uh, with documentation or not documentation in the United States are coming from Mexico or, or other Latin American spaces. And hey, as we just mentioned, that's, the both, that's, that's where a lot of Mormons live. Um, and so the church, those are those are Mexicans, those are potential Mormons that Trump is, you know, uh, denigrating with his with his 
with his wall talk and talk of Mexicans as rapists and murderers and uh, the worst kind. So, you know, all that said, <laughs> very brief, Jeff Flake still is voting along party lines, uh, you know, as is our dear senator here, Ben Sass and others, uh, Mitt Romney, or, or, you know, if Mitt Romney were to unseat Orrin Hatch uh, um, in, in, um, in, in Utah or, or take Orrin Hatch's seat in Utah, uh, he'd probably still vote along the re- kind of standard Republican line. So it's an interesting, interesting moment for the Mormons as they as they kind of sort things out. So last question. Um, sure. If a non-Mormon were to want to read the Book of Mormon just as an open-minded activity to be more culturally, culturally literate, what do you sure. think a non-Mormon reader of the Book of Mormon, what would you encourage them to do to break beyond their preconceived notions about Mormonism while reading the text? It's a real hard text. I have two recommendations. Number one, I'm going to make a, a plug for the book that helped me as a non-Mormon understand it, Grant, Grant Hardy. Uh, who's a professor at the University of North Carolina uh, in Asheville? Grant Hardy, a fantastic literary scholar, uh, has written for for Oxford University Press a reader's guide to the Book of Mormon and an annotated Book of Mormon that are incredibly helpful to understand. Um, so I would start there, and those could be procured at your local university library or uh, are online pretty easily. Those are fantastic books to help get you started. So if you want to, those would be fantastic readers guide, right? It's hard to dive into the book of uh, the Bible without some handholding. It's hard to dive. Certainly it's hard to dive into the Quran uh, without some, you know, prior knowledge. So that's one way. Here's another way. When those missionaries show up at your doorstep, let them in. <laughs> those 19 year olds, let them in, uh, uh, you know, give them some non coffee, uh, give them a snack and go th- and, and hey, you know whether or not you're interested in and in converting to Mormonism, uh, have them share with uh, with you their understanding of the Book of Mormon. Have them teach you uh, how they understand the value of the Book of Mormon. Um, I certainly did that as part of my education. I was upfront with the missionaries. I said, hey, I'm a I'm a scholar. I'm I'm not looking to convert, but. Uh, you know, you're welcome to, if that's okay, you're welcome to hang out with me every couple of weeks and we can do some reading lessons. And boy, was that helpful for me to understand Mormon culture, but also kind of contemporary Mormon understandings of the Book of Mormon. So those are two ways to go about it. So uh, I can't, and I really re- can't recommend the, the la- either of them more strongly. Grant Hardy's book is just, books are so fantastic, but those missionaries too will be so grateful to not have a door, another door slammed in their face, and so grateful for someone, even if they're not interested in converting, taking their their tradition seriously. And I think we all should. Um, we all should take you know these traditions seriously. I have uh, multiple students that are getting ready to leave on their own mission in a couple oh, months, and I could tell everybody that these are the nicest young people in the world. <laughs> and if you let them in, you're not going to be—they're not going to be mean to you. It's going to be a really polite conversation. Exactly. So, Dr. Max Perry Mueller, I'm going to cite your namesake here because you have really helped everybody uh, live up to Max Mueller's notion that he who knows one knows none. There you go. So thank you for helping people understand one more. I highly recommend your book, and I am so grateful to you for your time today. And it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hey, Greg, thanks so much. And uh, thanks so much for your time today. And I know we didn't get to one of your questions, 
uh, I, I'm looking at here in question number 12. It's funny because they, I, I was reminded when you sent me this, these questions of the Articles of Faith, uh, the LDS Church Articles of Faith. Are about, <laughs> they were almost exactly the same number of them. But uh, you mentioned Missouri. and yep. uh, Mormons, Mormon history in Missouri is very much alive. And if you ask Mormons long enough, uh, they'll think it's the, the eh, well, some, some. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, we'll think... Uh, that the Missouri still remains the, the the home of the future of Mormonism, but you know most Mormons every day, like your 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 dear students who are preparing for their mission, you know like 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 all, like most of us, they're not concerned about uh, they don't worry themselves about history of polygamy or race or these kind of things. They're just trying to live their everyday lives and care for their families. And, uh, and so I think that's something to admire. So anyway, thanks for your time. Thank you, sir. And uh, maybe we can do a part two someday. <laughs> I would love that. I'd love that. The Classical Ideas podcast is written and performed by me, Greg Soto. Original music is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. His music can be found at www.wearewarmmusic.com. Thanks for listening.